Hello and welcome back to Jetavana Rama Buddhist Monastery. If you tuned in to last week's talk, I'm sure you're all waiting eagerly to find out what's up next. We have entered territory that I have promised that we will walk together for some time. And we are entering some of the really interesting, really exciting stuff. This is because we are beginning to understand how we work, how our mind works, why we understand the world in the way we do, why we respond differently, why we recognize things differently, our emotions, and why sometimes we lose control of ourselves, and how some people act differently to others, to the same response or to the same stimulus, different response. How does that happen? Perhaps up until now, those who may not have come across the Buddha's teaching would have attributed such behavior to chance, maybe to the DNA makeup of human beings, perhaps to nurture or maybe to nature or perhaps to a higher divine being or entity simply because you couldn't find an explanation to it. We've seen this when we go back in time, our ancestors often attributed things that they didn't understand to divine intervention. Because that way they felt that they didn't need to be responsible for some of the things that happened to them and to others through them. But in Buddhist philosophy, This teaching enables us to understand that we can take complete responsibility and we can take complete control over what goes on with us and through us. So this is not a teaching that takes away control and responsibility, but on the contrary, it actually puts responsibility and control back into our lives. This is one of the reasons I'm very fond of this philosophy. And 
I'm really excited to share these principles with you because I feel that they will empower you to finally figure out why you think in the way you do, why you do some of the things you do, how you can transform the way you respond to events outside. Because the event itself may be out of your control. You're unable to influence the weather. You're unable to influence how other people behave in front of you. However, through your understanding of these principles, you will finally be able to control with precision and accuracy exactly how you want to respond to things. Once you get into grips the principles contained within these teachings you will be free from some of the emotions that bother you and sometimes keep you up at night. It may be that you don't like to get angry, but you can't stop yourself. Am I right? It may be that you hate it when you feel jealousy, but you can't stop yourself. Perhaps it may be that you don't like it when you have lustful thoughts about someone, because you know it's just not right but you can't help it. So then you feel like locking yourself up, shoving yourself into a corner, running away from the world, and some even feel that the only real answer they can find for themselves is to off with themselves. But what we are trying to do is to show you that there are always better answers to problems once we understand the workings of the mind. So, on our quest to achieving ultimate happiness, on our journey following the footsteps of the great master who once took this journey before us and then laid down the breadcrumbs so people many scores, many hundreds thousands, hundreds of thousands millions of people who seek freedom happiness enlightenment could follow on his footsteps and achieve the same liberation that he did for himself. This is why recognizing this great service that he rendered to all humanity, we affirm to make use of this opportunity by paying homage to that great master, the Lord Buddha. So, without further ado,
Let us do that. And as soon as we've done that, we have one hefty task to carry on with. That is to continue where we left off last week. So let's do that. Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Now, let's quickly remind ourselves what we've discussed so far. Over the last couple of weeks, we took a dive into the workings of the mind. Now we know that the mind serves a purpose. It didn't just come into being for no reason. And it's not something that's going to be around with no purpose. The mind absolutely has purpose. It serves a function. Five to be precise. And these functions are to receive, to register, to recognize, to respond, and to perceive. If you joined us over the last couple of weeks, by now, you'll be very familiar with what I've just mentioned. So these five things are what goes on in our mind. And this helps us to perceive the world that we live in. You know you're looking at something and what that something is and what you can do with that something and all this in the flash of a second. All because the above five things happen inside of you. So really, this is an, there's an algorithm just like a computer would. In just the same way you'd have to program a computer to understand, to interpret and input a stimulus, the mind has an algorithm which is used to understand stimuli that reach it through the five sense doors. So far, so good. But we know that unlike a computer, there's something that happens in our minds which bother us. These are the things that keep us awake at night. These are those niggly feelings, emotions that bother us, that torture us. But unlike a computer, we know from personal experience that the mind is something more and in addition to a computer. 
And in some ways, you may feel that that is what makes you human. We know that a computer is unable to have emotion. But you and I, we are capable of that. How does that happen? How is it that we see an image of someone and we can feel emotional about the person we have seen? And it's not just a person, it's other things as well. Emotions aren't simply things like affection, anger, jealousy. Even if you feel that something's good-looking, pretty, beautiful, or even ugly, they're also emotions. Now you know that a computer does not understand beautiful. You can code it to respond in a certain way, But that's not because it understands beautiful. It's just a pre-programmed response. But no one programmed you, did they? To understand beauty? Or did they? We discussed what pleasure is in previous talks. We distinguished the difference between pleasure and happiness. I'm sure you remember that happiness is the default state of the mind whereas pleasure is acquired. It's it's an acquired emotion. It's our response or it's the mind's response when it relieves from vexation. And I hope you're now taking a jog down memory lane dipping into your memory and retrieving some of those talks that we had earlier where we talked about how pleasure works and how we understand beauty, why two things can be perceived differently by two individuals, why one sees something as beautiful, the other can disagree. Now, When we touched this topic back then, we only scratched the surface. But now that we are starting to dip into the inner workings of the mind, we've now opened the bonnet, so to speak. And now we are looking at the cogs that turn within this sphere that is the mind. We'll need to take a closer look so we can better understand how exactly these things work. Why do we do this? Well, there's always only been one answer to any question like that on this series of talks, hasn't there? It's for one reason and one reason alone, because our understanding of these concepts will enable us to achieve ultimate happiness, nothing else. When you understand how vexation works, that in itself will put the power back into your hands to stop vexation from taking place. Because now I know, and I hope you'll agree with me, that you have fallen out of love with pleasure.
Have you or haven't you? Now that, of course, is only a question that you can answer for yourself. So, I hope you're beginning to understand why these talks were organized in a particular order. We started off with what Buddhism was, the fact that it's a philosophy, that you don't have to give up anything, all you need to do is realize. We then started to talk about the principle of cause and effect, and then there was always a question of why do we talk about cause and effect, why are we interested in it? And then we tried to understand what pleasure was, and then you began to understand that it was simply relief from vexation, and then, through our understanding of cause and effect, if we can do something to eliminate vexation, then pleasure will also be taken rid of. But for that, of course, you had to fall out of love with pleasure. For as long as one is in favor of pleasure, there's no point in us talking about this because they still haven't understood or realized that pleasure is just a farce. So if you follow this series by now, you'll be geared up to take the next step because now we are going to take an atomic view at how the mind actually experiences these emotions. So from here on, you will know exactly what goes on in this thing called the mind. It may have been a black box to you up until now, but now, from here on, you'll begin to understand exactly how you work how you respond to things, why you do the things you do, the way you do, and actually even how you feel about yourself. We'll start to talk about things like guilt and why it's overrated. Some people say that guilt is a really positive feeling and they encourage it. But I think once you start to understand the inner workings of the mind, you begin to realize that actually guilt shouldn't really have a place. Certainly not on our path to happiness. All of this is to come. So, let's take a dip again. And begin to unravel further how the mind works and understand some of the things like vexation and pleasure and how they actually occur in the mind. So let's switch our focus to the whiteboard and through some illustrations we will begin to understand the mechanism behind this. Let's take an example to refresh our memory of what we understand about the mind already. So I'll use the example I'm, I always use 
a flower. We have the eye that observes it. We discussed this last week. These are light waves. And the eye then, of course, converts this into an electrical signal, which goes to the brain. And the brain performs its job wonderfully by transferring an impulse or an impression on the mind. And as soon as this happens, we know that as soon as the mind receives this impression, it has the five things that it needs to do. What are these five again? Receive, register, recognize, respond, and perceive. Right? So we know this now like the back of our palms. Excellent. Now, do you see vexation anywhere? How about pleasure? See, what we've discussed until now does not in itself explain how one might see this flower as beautiful. You might think that isn't that a function or isn't that served by the function of recognition? Is it not recognition that tells us that this is a flower? Or an, sorry, and the fact that it's beautiful? Well, if that were the case, then one must always find the same flower beautiful. But that is not true. Your opinion about things can change rapidly. One day you might think something's beautiful, the next day you might think it's ugly. It's an eyesore. So, if it's recognition, and you recognize something the same way, then it cannot be the function of recognition that does the job of assessing whether what you have seen is beautiful or ugly. It can't be any of the others, surely. But it may feel that it's somewhere hidden inside this. For example, one might think that it's perception. Isn't that part of perceiving that this flower is beautiful? Now, these five things happen in the minds of arahants as well. But an arahant does not find a flower beautiful. He or she will know that this is a flower, but he or she does not find the flower beautiful. And why is that? Well, if they did, then what would be the point of becoming an arahant? If beauty is what the mind experiences, not the eye, not the brain, but the mind, if beauty is something that the mind experiences, 
when it relieves from vexation, then that vexation should also be part of the mind. And if in becoming an arahant, their purpose was to free themselves from vexation, and yet they can still recognize this and perceive this as a flower, then none of these functions can be that which serves the purpose of vexation or that which creates vexation. But I'm sure you'll remember from one of our previous talks that the mind has yet another function and that is attachment. Now, I know that you know by now that vexation is caused by attachment. When the mind is attached to something, the mind expects it. And there is no bigger problem for the mind than that of expectation. Expectation is the root of all of this. Because what happens when the mind expects something? It will always be in one of two states. When the mind expects, in addition to doing these things, it's also doing one more thing, and that is attaching. So when the mind is attached to something, that's when we know we are expecting something. Just think about it on a macroscopic level. So this is very microscopic, atomic, but you know, consider it from the perspective of your lives. You only expect something when you're attached to it. And you're, whenever you're attached to something, you expect something of it. We've talked about numerous examples to understand this principle. So for instance, you'll have expectations of your children. You'll have expectations of your friends, of your family. You'll have expectations of your job, your health, your wealth, and so on. You don't expect things that you're not attached to. So there is no expectation that some random guy you don't even know performs well in his job, do you? That would be meaningless because there's no attachment there and therefore there's no expectation there. The mind's job in its purest form is to perform these five things. And these five things are essential. We talked about this last week. You can never have one on its own. It's all or none. So the mind in its purest form has to perform all five of these functions. And that's all the mind is supposed to do. But the problem that we have is the mind gets hijacked. You know how it is when something gets hijacked, right? Oftentimes we've learned of the word hijack in the context of, say, an aircraft, a jet that can get hijacked. And what happens then is not what the pilot or the passengers of the aircraft want. The plane's journey or the flight journey is completely 
diverted and is in accordance with those who have hijacked. In much the same way, when the mind gets hijacked, the mind can no longer silently and obediently perform these five functions and they alone. The mind now has to serve the purpose or the intentions of the hijackers. And what is this, who is this hijacker? This hijacker is attachment. Attachment, however, is rooted in, and we know this, ignorance. We've talked about this previously, but I will remind you as we go further how these two things are connected and what's it and, and why this leads to expectation. If you remember, the reason that the mind attaches is because it is ignorant about the very thing that it sets an expectation on. So for instance, remember we talked about a mother and her two children, the example of them going to school and taking exams, and the two brothers, the two siblings, one performs well in class, the other doesn't quite perform the same, but the mother has an expectation, a higher expectation on one, and a lesser expectation on the other. Remember there were the two kids, one who used to perform really well in class, always used to get the top grades, and then for him to come home and say, Mom, I've come first in class. Someone who's always first in class. There is not a great deal of pleasure that the mother experiences out of this. However, if there's someone who always fails, who's always lowest in their class, and they, can, they come home and say, Mother, I've come second or I've come third in class, then that can be a great source of pleasure to the mother. Why so? Because, well, the mother's always in a state of vexation. A state of vexation about her two children and more about one than the other. For the child who always performs well in class, there is no reason for the mother to be that vexed about her son. But for the child who does not perform all that well, well, of course, she's always in a state of fixation. She's always fearful. She's always worried that he might perform poorly. And therefore, when the result comes and it is beyond her expectations, then, of course, the, um, the amount by which one can outperform expectation is directly proportional to one's pleasure that is experienced through the course of that experience. So, why do I say this is, an, this is a hijack going on here? Because the mind is only supposed to do these five things. The mind is not supposed to expect, because that is not the purpose of the mind. The mind is only supposed to perform these five things. But when ignorance creeps in, and what is ignorance after all? The ignorance that whatever it is that the mind receives, and in this case, this 
the sight of this flower. When the mind is indoctrinated to think that this flower is beautiful, remember, this is simply an indoctrination. It's not something real. It's something the mind is made to believe. When the mind is made to believe that the flower is beautiful, now the mind begins to expect it. What is beauty after all? Well, beauty is pleasure. When the mind is indoctrinated to believe that this flower or the sight of it can bring it much pleasure, now the mind begins to expect it. Because, well, you know, who doesn't want to be happy, right? So, when the mind does not understand the difference between happiness and pleasure, we do now because we understand that the two things happen in very different ways. One is by default and the other is a product of a function. We've never known this before we came across the Buddha's philosophy, right? So, the mind sees that these two things as one. In fact, it doesn't even know that another one of this exists. This is the only form of happiness it has always known. And because it's never seen two types of happiness, there's never been a reason to distinct one from the other. So, pleasure is what the mind has always experienced. But it never knew, and I'm talking about the mind, therefore I'm referring to it as it, but you know, you could think of it as yourself. You've never known that pleasure is actually the product of a function, and that function being relief from vexation. You do now, but you didn't earlier. And this experience of pleasure is simply a result of wrong thinking. What is that wrong thinking? That this flower, the sight of it, is beautiful. Is it really beautiful? No, I mean, can it be beautiful? If it were, what were some of the ways in which we proved this? The fact that a flower is not in itself beautiful. Well, if it were, then two people observing it must feel exactly the same way. But we know it's not. Why does a florist have to stock lots of different types of flowers? You can't say that simply because of the event. You know, for, for a funeral you'll take one type of flower, but for Valentine's Day you take another type. For the same event, two people will come and take different types of flowers because one thinks one is more beautiful than the other. So then that cannot be the default response of the mind. But they'll both know that they are flowers, except one will find it beautiful, the other won't. Why so? Well, that is all because of the indoctrination. And that is wrong knowledge. In other words, ignorance. Wrong knowledge is ignorance. What is a wrong knowledge? That beauty is something that is within this flower. It's in the sight. And when this wrong knowledge, this misinformation, or this ignorance, creeps into the mind, how? Through association. Association of what? Association of that fact. We learn things by associating, don't we? We learn things from what we listen, 
We learn things from the people that we associate because they tell us things, they teach us things. We learn things from reading books and articles and magazines and newspapers. We learn things from watching TV, browsing the internet, social media and so on. We're always bombarded with all sorts of information, some of which we choose to accept, others we choose to ignore. And again, this choice of ignorance and choice of exception is really again based in what we already know and understand about the world. That's why if you know what an elephant is, if someone were to point out an elephant and say, hey, that's a rabbit, you're not going to accept that. Because it's almost hard-coded in your mind that this is an elephant, and there's no way you can tell me that this is a rabbit. So, but the thing is, we talked about advertising and how the fact that beauty does not really exist can be evidenced by the fact that advertising is needed for people to be for people to accept that something is, is beautiful. You know, just the, the very fact that there's advertising is also again proof that beautiful is only an opinion, right? Because if it really existed, then why would you need advertising? Everyone would think the same about whatever product that's available on the market. Why do you need to say that this, is, this tastes delicious or this looks beautiful, this is gorgeous? Right? You, don't, you wouldn't need that. Everyone would accept it uh, on first sight. But it doesn't work like that. Therefore, we know that, that this is misinformation. Ignorance is just that. Ignorance is wrong information. It's when you accept something that is not true. That's when you'll have to say that the mind or you are ignorant. So when you're ignorant, or when the mind is ignorant, to be more precise, the mind now thinks that beauty is something that is in the flower. It's part of the flower. It's part of the sight. Or it's part of this, this impression on the mind. So really, when the mind is ignorant about beauty and the fact that beauty is simply a manifestation of pleasure, the mind thinks, right, this is an ignorant mind, an ignorant mind thinks that it not only receives the mental impression of this image, but it also receives beauty. That's what the mind thinks. And the mind thinks that it not only registers the sight of the flower, but it also thinks, guess what, that it registers beauty. And the mind thinks that it not only recognizes the flower, but it also recognizes beauty. You see how this goes wrong? And ultimately, the mind perceives that it's not just the flower, but I have also perceived beauty. All because, the mind, all because of what the mind thinks is true. You know, these five things work on a foundation of knowledge. How we understand the world has a great deal to do with how these five things operate. So this is the environment. This knowledge 
And that knowledge can be twofold. It can either be true or it can be false. And if it's true, in other words, truth about the world, truth about sights, truth about sounds, smells, taste, touch, and mental thoughts. Because we discussed last week, these are the five things that come to the mind, right? If, the, if this knowledge that the mind holds is the truth, then that is called wisdom. If this knowledge is false, then that's called ignorance. If the mind's ignorance what is ignorant, what happens? If the mind's ignorant, the mind now thinks it has this preconception, it's predisposed to thinking that receiving, registering, recognizing, responding, and perceiving, all these things are not to do are not to do just about the sight of the flower, but also the beauty that it brings to the mind. Now we know clearly that beauty is not something that the flower or this sight can bring to the mind because it's not something that is contained within this. But does an ignorant mind know this? I mean, that is what ignorance is after all, not knowing the truth. So the mind is always knowledgeable, but not always the right kind of knowledge. You know, you'll always know something about almost everything, right? So just because you're knowledgeable doesn't mean you're always right. If you hold the right knowledge, then that knowledge will serve you well. If you hold wrong knowledge or ignorance, then no good will come out of it. So the mind is always knowledgeable. The mind always has an opinion. The mind always has some preconceptions about these impressions that that are received on the mind. And when it's ignorant about those about those impressions, attachment arises. I mean, no wonder the mind wants to attach. Remember, attachment is also a function of the mind. That's why I said, in addition to these five functions, attachment also happens. This is a sixth function. It does not happen in the minds of arahants. Why does it not happen in the mind of an arahant? Because an arahant is not ignorant. What is ignorance after all? The ignorant is wrong or false knowledge. What is false knowledge? False knowledge is knowledge that holds that beauty is contained within the sight. That's just the example I've drawn here. So sight or sound or smell, taste, touch. Remember we talked in one of one of our previous talks about beauty of sight, beauty of sound, beauty of smell, beauty of taste and beauty of touch, where I simply used the generic beauty as a generic term to explain or to, to, to refer to pleasure that was sought in these five sense impressions. Right? So, if, and this is a big if, if the mind bears this knowledge 
that there is beauty in sight, that there is beauty in sound, that there is beauty in smell, taste and touch, that beauty is an intrinsic part of these impressions, these sensual stimuli, then of course you can expect the mind to await that beauty. Just imagine something like this. Let's say someone was to deliver a parcel, right? And we were expecting for them to deliver the parcel and say uh, a free gift with that. When the, if, if you were to expect a free gift to be delivered with that parcel, then when you know that the delivery guy is at the door, you're not just expecting for them to hand over the parcel to you, you're also expecting for them to give you that free gift, right? But what if there was no such thing? What if there was no free gift with the purchase you made? It was whatever you paid for, and that was it. If that were true, but the mind still believes that a free gift is to be received, then, you know, of course, you're going to expect it. The same thing happens here. This free gift or beauty, the mind expects to receive from these stimuli. Sight, sound, smell, taste and touch. It's merely an expectation. It's never going to be something that is going to be delivered. So the mind always waits by the door, hoping that in the next impression that the brain delivers to it, it will receive it. It's like, you know, imagine that there were lottery tickets that never had, that there was no chance that one could win the jackpot. Let's imagine that, you know, there was a, one of those scratch cards where if you were to match five of the same thing, then you would win, the, you'd win some prize money. But let's say they never printed one like that. Right? Now, how many cards would you have to buy and scratch to win that prize? The answer is none. But what if you didn't know that? What if you were of the impression that, no, you know, some, one of these days, one of these cards is going to be that, that prize money. I'm going to hit the jackpot. I know I, I will. And you just keep on scratching. And each time paying for a ticket, because you won't get them for free. You're going to have to buy them. But what if it was fraud on their part? And there was no way, not a, snow, not a snowball's chance in hell, that you were going to win the jackpot because they never printed one which had all the matching pictures to win the jackpot. If that were the case, then any knowledge or any preconceptions that one might have of winning this jackpot would all be ignorance, wouldn't it? Because that would be false knowledge. But here's the, the worst thing about false knowledge. Whenever someone holds some kind of knowledge, 
they always think that's right. When you're ignorant about something, do you know you're ignorant? I mean, would you deliberately be ignorant about something? How does that happen? That can't even happen. Could you deliberately, intentionally be in the blind about something? You can't do that. I couldn't convince you that an elephant were a rabbit because it's just impossible. You can't fool yourself, can you? You know when something is true. You can't all of a sudden just ignore what you know or just completely erase it from your mind. It doesn't work like that. So the thing is, whatever knowledge you have, you're always of the opinion that it is true. Be that the right knowledge or wrong knowledge. So whether it is right or wrong is not something that you have control of. Whatever knowledge you hold about something, you'll always think that is true. Now, for instance, if you thought that, you know, someone you meet on the street and say, do you want to guess, uh, or, or you might say, I know you, don't I? Isn't your name, and you go, isn't your name John? And the guy goes, no, I'm not John, I'm Andy. Now, when you say, isn't your name John? And that knowledge that you have, you think is true. You think that is, that is right. But you're wrong. That was not John. That was Andy you met on the street. So then Andy says, no, actually, that's not my name. My name's Andy. Ah, okay. So now you think, okay, I was... I had some wrong knowledge. It was not... This was not John. This was actually Andy. And then... A few moments later, the guy says, Haha, actually, I got you. My name was actually Sam. And now you think, ah, why did you say your name was Andy then? Right, so your name is Sam. So now you think the guy's name is Sam, and now you think that's the right knowledge. Previously, you held Andy as right knowledge. Prior to that, you thought John was right knowledge. What if when he said his name was Sam, he was lying yet again? How do you know? This is the problem about knowledge. Whatever you know, you think you know it right. And so when the mind is ignorant, the mind does not know that it's ignorant. Isn't that the worst kind of ignorance? When you know that what you know is right, but still is wrong. Why would you even try to come out of it? Uh, it's, it's, it's like if a man were born blind, do you think he'd ever try to break out of it? Do you think he'd ever try to get his eyesight? No, he was born blind. He does not know that there's anything other than blindness. In fact, he doesn't even know that he's blind. Because to know that one is blind, one must have seen or experienced what not being blind is. That's why only someone who's, who is not born blind, if they do go blind, might try to do, undergo some kind of medical procedure to regain their sight. But someone who's born blind, actually it doesn't bother them that they're blind. 
because they don't even know what blindness is. You can tell them, you know, I can see things and they'll go, what is seeing? It doesn't bother me. So like that, when the mind is ignorant, the mind does not know that it's ignorant. You can answer this question for yourself. You've always thought that pleasure was something that was intrinsic in the experiences that you had. Did that bother you? Honestly, tell me. When you tucked yourself in to uh, a kebab and you thought, hmm, this is delicious, did it bother you that deliciousness was not something that was part of the meal that you were having? Now you know that it was never part of it. Now you know that if you found beauty in taste or deliciousness, it was simply an experience that you had through relief from vexation. Today, when you tuck yourself into a kebab and you experience that pleasure, today you have a problem with it. Because today, you don't like the fact that you feel that way because you have fallen out of love with pleasure. So you don't like that you feel that way. As pleasurable as it might be, as pleasurable as that feeling might be, you're not in favor of it because you know, for me to be feeling this much of pleasure, how much of vexation must there be in my mind? Right? So because you know this, today that bothers you. But think about when you didn't know this, when you didn't have the faintest idea that Deliciousness or beauty of taste was not something in the taste itself. Then you just enjoyed the experience, didn't you? Now, you can't tell me ignorance is bliss, like some would. Because, you know, some people who, don't, who simply don't get this, they'll turn around and say, well, Bhante, you know, we were doing just fine until you came us and told us that, until you came and told us that, this pleasure is simply is, is an experience that the mind goes through when it relieves itself from, from vexation. Why did you tell us that? Until then we live just fine. Well, that's not so true, is it? Because even though you didn't know that pleasure was relief from vexation, did that not make it relief from vexation? You don't need to know something for it to be that way. Whether you agree or disagree, whether you accept or not, that there is such a thing as black and white, well, there is. Your knowledge of it or your ignorance of it has no bearing on the truth about the world. So what is true and what is false is a function, or what is true and what is false is dependent on what is really true, regardless of what you accept is true. So this true and false has nothing to do with this knowledge really. Just because you believe something's true doesn't make it true. Just because you believe something's false doesn't make it false. So in other words, what you believe, what you expect, or what you accept, or what you hold as true, does not make something true. True is true and false is false. If you hold false knowledge as true, 
that's when we say you're ignorant. If you hold true knowledge as true, that's what we call a wisdom. Ignorance breeds attachment. And when you're attached to something, what comes next? We know. What comes next is fear and grief. These two things. So both fear and grief are based in vexation. Because when there's vexation in the mind, you're always fearful. Fearful that what you have experienced will be lost, somehow snatched from you, taken away from you. Or there's grief after the fact, when you lose it, when it, is, when it has been taken away from you, when it has been stolen from you, then there's grief. What is the connection here? Why are we talking about fear and grief? Why are we revisiting this topic when we are now taking a microscopic view of the mind? Well, here's the thing. Remember last week we talked about how this works as a series. Right? Thoughts arise and pass away. Like, and this was a visual representation of that. Thoughts arising and passing away right, on an axis of time. Now, I explained to you that each one of these are individual thought moments. None of these occur at the same time. Sorry, no two of them occur at the same time. There's always ever only going to be one, one thought moment. Now, here's the thing. Every thought arises and passes away, and the lifetime of a thought is that. This is the lifespan of a thought. Between the time of its arrival, sorry, of its arising and the time of it passing away. This is the lifespan of a thought. Now, this is no problem if, if all it serves is what it's supposed to serve. If this thought serves simply what it's supposed to serve, which is these five things, receiving, registering, recognizing, responding, and perceiving, there's absolutely no problem. So, for instance, the sight of this flower, when received by the brain, and then an impression, a mental impression is passed to the mind, over the course of this thought, as it arises and passes away, all these five things can happen. So, Receiving, registering, recognizing, responding, perceiving, right? All these five things can happen in the course of this, of this thought, in its lifetime. And the same thing will happen again, yet again. If you keep on looking at the same flower, remember, these thoughts arise and pass away at such a rapid rate. So, the moment this thought passes away, the next one is ready. And you have receiving again, registering, recognizing, responding, and perceiving. And once that's done, the next one again, receiving, registering, recognizing, responding, perceiving. And then yet again, you know the drill now, receiving, registering, recognizing, responding, and perceiving. So each thought is capable of doing just that, and it can do it just fine, no problem. 
And performing these five functions has no negative impact on the mind. There is no fear, there's no grief. Why? Because there's no attachment. Why? Because there's no ignorance. Why? Because the knowledge that this mind or this thought holds, as I said, these thoughts arise and pass away on a foundation of knowledge. So knowledge is always there. This is the environment in which these thoughts arise and pass away. So this knowledge is, is part of the makeup of the mind. So it's always there. And it, while it's always there, these thoughts arise and pass away. Right? So there's, nothing, there's no problem here whatsoever. However, when the problem happens when, as I said earlier, the mind gets hijacked. When the mind gets hijacked, wrong knowledge or false knowledge false knowledge creeps in this is the moment of hijack when false knowledge creeps into the mind now what happens with every thought that arises there is an expectation and what is that expectation that expectation is whatever the brain drops on the mind as this package it's not just sight, sound, smell, taste and touch. Now the mind hopes to receive. What else does it expect? That's right. It expects beauty. It expects pleasure. So it expects to receive not just the sight or the sound, smell, taste or touch. It expects to receive pleasure. It expects to register pleasure. It expects to recognize pleasure. It expects to perceive pleasure. But is pleasure something that can be delivered to the mind? Or is pleasure a product of a function that happens within the mind? Now we know this. It cannot be something that can be delivered from the outside. Pleasure does not exist anywhere on the outside. It's an output. It's a product of a function within the mind. And that function of course, we understand now is vexation and then relief from vexation. Now, here's the thing. When there's false knowledge, there's always attachment. And that attachment causes the mind to vex. Right from the start till the end, there'll be vexation. Vexation is not fear. Vexation is not grief. Vexation is always present. Wherever there's attachment, there's vexation. Wherever there's attachment, there'll be either fear or grief. But wherever there's attachment, there'll always be vexation. So right from the start, there's going to be vexation. Now, on a thought that has vexation, it is received. What is received? Sight is received. Can beauty be received? No, because the brain cannot deliver beauty. Why cannot the brain deliver... Why can't the brain deliver beauty? Well, because the optic nerve cannot deliver beauty. Why not? Well, because the eye, the retina cannot deliver beauty. Why not? Because these light rays that land on the eye cannot deliver beauty. Why not? Well, because the flower cannot deliver beauty. And why is that? Because beauty is not in the flower. So how can something be delivered where it is not available at the source? Beauty is a product of a function that happens in the mind and in the mind alone. If you were to take out everything that was mental, 
not as in insane mental anything if you take if you were to take out all minds of the surface of this planet beauty would not exist beauty only exists in minds right because it's a product it, it's actually you can't say that it actually exists in the mind it's a product of a function and for as long as that function takes place then beauty can manifest so right where this thought arises there's fake or false knowledge and where there's false knowledge there's attachment and where there's attachment there's vexation so vexation starts right from the beginning and is beauty delivered no but is there no expectation of beauty well there is why is there expectation of beauty because that is what this false knowledge is what is the false knowledge that beauty is to be expected like that free gift standing by the door waiting for the postman or the delivery driver hoping to not just receive the parcel but also a free gift but there's no free gift you don't know there's no free gift until the free gift is not delivered but what if you just kept on expecting that next time i'm sure i'll get it oh no the next time i'm sure i'll get it i'm sure the next time i'll get it and you just keep on expecting it but never does it come because for as long as there's this false knowledge for as long as you the mind believes that beauty can be delivered from the outside it will always expect it regardless of how many times it is disappointed let me emphasize it again regardless of how many times the mind is disappointed it will keep on expecting it why because that expectation is based on this false knowledge only and only when this false knowledge is replaced with true knowledge or right knowledge in other words wisdom will the mind stop expecting will the mind stop expecting beauty and when the mind stops expecting beauty it only receives what is delivered is there a problem there's no problem there's no reason for vexation there's no re- no reason for disappointment therefore there's no reason for fear or grief but let's just quickly have a look at what happens when there is vexation when there is vexation receiving registering recognizing responding and perceiving happens that happens anyway because any 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 thought has to serve those five functions those are the most basic functions that any thought serves this attachment function is a separate one and it's in it's in addition to these five things and only happens in the minds of non arahants so from from the prutugjanas or those who have not understood the dhamma one bit to those who are in the process of going through this transformation until the point of becoming an arahant so that attachment breeds expectation and that expectation is for for beauty so what happens at this point where it's waiting for the free gift what is this free gift again it's an analogy for beauty or pleasure right so the mind's waiting for it the mind's waiting for it fearful that it may not because it likes it it wants it whenever there's an expectation there's always going to be fear what if i don't what if i'll never but the thing is the mind never thinks it's never going to that's why it keeps on expecting it 
But remember, each of these thoughts have to be treated as an individual thought. So wherever there is false knowledge, it matters not that the previous thought was disappointed. This thought will just keep on expecting it as if it knew nothing about what happened just a moment ago. That's the way it works. So, at this point, it's, it's, expecta- it's expecting beauty. And does beauty arrive? There's no beauty to arrive. That's why beauty does not arrive. So, but it's waiting. It's a waiting game, and therefore there's fear. You know, whenever there's a waiting game, there's fear. What if not? Right? There's this, the what if feeling. You know, what if it doesn't come? What if it breaks? What if they disappoint me? So that what if fear is always there. And then what happens at this point? This relief from vexation happens. Why is there relief from vexation? Well, because the mind is waiting for beauty. That beauty does not, does not arrive. But what arrives is this sight, sound, smell, taste and touch and the mind what it does is it waits for that with that expectation that these five things will be received on the mind and whenever it, for as long as it keeps on waiting it's in that state of vexation but ultimately the mind does not receive beauty So what happens then? The mind realizes that there is no hope of receiving beauty. Why? Because beauty was never going to be part of the package. There was never going to be a free gift. And what happens then? All hope of receiving any kind of beauty is lost. And now the mind falls into grief. Why grief? It's just not coming. Beauty is just not coming. We waited for so long and it's not coming. And alas, this thought just passes away, grieving that no beauty was, was received or experienced. What happens with the next thought? The same thing happens again. It starts off again with vexation. Why vexation? Because there's attachment. Why attachment? Because there's false knowledge. It starts off expecting beauty, right? And when there's expectation, there's fear. So it start off, starts off fearful. Might I not? Will I be able to? And then, at this peak, it realizes beauty is never going to come. So what happens then? It passes away. Because it's time to pass away. The mind can't just you know, stay here all day waiting for, well, let's see if beauty is going to come. That's not how the mind works. It just doesn't work like that. That's not its mechanism. So as much as it wants to wait and linger around in the hope that beauty is going to come, it can't do that because it can only live for its lifespan. So it's now time to pass away. And has beauty been received? Oh no. So what happens now? Of course, grief. Now it's time to grieve. Why? Something you were waiting for never received, never arrived. Now There's never going to be a chance again to experience this. And that's the grief that's experienced. And what happens in the next moment? The same thing happens. And the same thing happens. And on and on and on and on. Whenever there's attachment, wherever there's attachment, 
It's only these things that have ever happened. Fear and grief. Always waiting. Hopeful. Fearful. Might I? Some point? Will I? Hopefully? Fear. But never received. And once the waiting game is over, when it realizes that it's, there's not going to be any chance that I'm going to get it anymore, it's time to pass away. And now it's back to grief. So fear and grief, fear and grief, fear and grief, time and time again. If this is not suffering, what is? In every thought that arises, this torment takes place. Excuse me. One might ask, Bhante, but are you sure that this happens in every thought? Excuse me. I don't feel that way, you might say. Here's the thing. You were born blind. You've not known any different. We were all born blind. We've never seen, we've never experienced a moment of our existence, a moment without fear or grief. So how do we know what it feels like to be fearless and with no grief? That's why the experience of an arhant is not something we can have just now. But through wisdom, our intellect allows us to know what it must be like. It must be so cool, so soothing, so relaxing, so free of fear and so free of grief. Is that something we can experience just now? Not quite. But as we progress in the Dhamma, the experience of fear and grief do start to dwindle. And they, re- they reduce in their intensity. It's something you will begin to experience as you progress in the Dhamma. But the moment of complete fearlessness, that experience of completely being free of grief will only be experienced once you actually become an Arahant. That is, when the mind is completely free of expectation. Therefore, completely free of vexation. Therefore, completely free of fear and grief. That is where we are heading. What do we need to do to get there? Simple. To get it into our heads, to get it into our minds, that the knowledge that we hold about the world, we have always held about the world, is incorrect. You don't have to take it at face value. This is why I'm helping you understand through these illustrations, through logic, rhyme and reason, that this is what goes on in the mind. And what's happening right now is happening, but it shouldn't be happening. But once you begin to understand this, you will then find a breakthrough. And once you've found that breakthrough, once you have found that breakthrough, it's then going to be just a journey of deliberate work and endeavor, through that effort, you can achieve a state of freedom. So, 
that is the state of ultimate happiness that one can achieve when, when they begin to understand, comprehend and realize the Dhamma. So that's where we are heading. Week by week, day by day, we further explore the truth, replacing the false knowledge that we have in our minds with true knowledge. In other words, replacing any ignorance we have in our minds, every modicum of it, with wisdom. That's going to take some time, but that's all we have, isn't it? That's the only thing we have. So, provided that we keep on at it, we can all work towards freeing ourselves from ignorance and replacing in its place wisdom. The day, the moment our minds are completely free of ignorance and founded in wisdom, at that very moment, all attachment is eliminated, eradicated. And at that moment, all vexation is eliminated. And at that moment, all fear and all grief is eliminated. Come along with us and I promise you that that destination is not going to be too long or too far from here. But for today, I'm going to leave you with that. Do take some time to go back and revisit this if you have a moment because it will be useful to play back some of these ideas in your mind and also, of course, dip into the lab of life and bring up some examples, some of your own experiences and see how that relates to what we've just discussed here. In our future talks, I will use further examples to help further understand this in, and, and they will, I'm sure, help you to better relate to this, to this knowledge, to this newfound knowledge. And it's through that comprehension, comprehension in itself is actually chipping away at ignorance and replacing in its stead wisdom. That is what comprehension is. And that comprehension takes place when you become knowledgeable, when you begin to understand the truth, that is the Dharma, and that's what we are here to help you do. So, more of that next week. But before we conclude, let us take a moment to transfer the merits we have acquired and pass on and be grateful to all those who've helped us get this far. All right. Let us take a moment then to transfer the merits we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend them. There is also transformation we have acquired to all members of the arm of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns, resident in your local temples and nunneries, who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and all other monks resident at this monastery, 
as well as the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these talks, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them. And may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plane, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. May to the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transmit the we have acquired to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone, from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes, and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May to the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transformation to our mothers, fathers, husbands and wives, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us, assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these maids, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments, ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transform maids to our devas, brahma, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Samudhisasana. Let us also transform maids to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these maids they prosper in divine power and wisdom May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transmit to our ancestors who have predeceased us, to all those who have been families, friends, and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara, and to those who have helped, supported, and assisted us in its very, in every way they could. Let us also transmit to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation, and may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in the mates we have acquired today. But it's also transformation to, to all those who have lost their lives in the natural calamities, such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them. And may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the warful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And let us all resolve that may to the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may to the power of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, you and I and everyone who has helped make this program a success, become an arahat unvahanse, or an arahat unvahanse in this very life itself, and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk. Looking forward to speaking to you next week. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. <laughs>